0: Welcome to the MVP, the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. I'm Dan Smith, the Director of Resources and Technology for the NMVVRC, and our guest today is Dr. Rochelle Hansen, who is the Director of Training for NMVVRC. Dr. Hansen is a child psychologist by training and a national expert on how violence and victimization that occurs to children affects them. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, mass violence and children. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Thank
1: you, Dan. Pleasure to be here.
0: You know, we've done some podcasts previously about mental health and mass violence, but we've really focused primarily on adults and how mass violence affects grown-ups uh, when it happens. But uh, as we know, there can be some differences between how grownups and children experience things. So I think the first thing I want to just toss out there, uh, Rochelle, is how are kids affected by mass violence?
1: So I think one of the first things to keep in mind when we're talking about children is the variability with a child's age and understanding and developmental level. So a young child is going to have a very different understanding and perspective than an older child, and a younger child is going to look to their parent or caregiver to try to get a better understanding of what's happening. I would also say overall that children are going to feel especially confused and uncertain and unsafe because they don't have the same level of understanding as an adult might have. So that's going to really have to come into play when we're talking about kids.
0: So you're really highlighting the importance of developmental stage, developmental level on how kids experience mass violence. Does that affect the kinds of symptoms or um, mental disorders that can sometimes occur following a mass violence exposure?
1: So I think that's a really good point in terms of the way that children are going to exhibit or manifest their symptoms. So, for example, a younger child, because of that sense of uncertainty and lack of understanding about what's going on, may become increasingly clingy and attention seeking towards a caregiver. They may also show a lot of what we call externalizing behavior problems. So they may be even more hyperactive or have more difficulty paying attention or sitting still. In contrast, with an adolescent, you may see that adolescent kind of withdraw and turn into themselves because that's a more typical way that an older child might respond. So that's kind of what I mean when I talk about developmental differences. It really does vary depending upon the age and the child's understanding of what's happening. And an adult caregiver really needs to understand and pay attention to the different ways that children are going to experience and perceive the events around them. Gotcha. The one other thing I might add about a teen that you could see or even an older child is, Another way that they can respond is they may be very angry, and they don't know how to express their anger appropriately, so they become even more argumentative or more difficult to get along with. And again, that's just their reaction and trying to understand what's going on around them.
0: Okay. Thank you for explaining that uh, so, so concisely. It really suggests that one of the things that parents really want to be looking for are alterations from normal behavior, looking for changes in how kids react to one another, how they um, interact with family members.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, think about the hallmark traumatic stress response, like post-traumatic stress. You know, in a young child, when we think about things like intrusive kinds of symptoms, what you might see in a young child is a fear of going to sleep because they're having really bad dreams and yet they can't verbally explain those bad dreams to a parent. Um, You might see in a younger child, a lot of like repetitive play. An older child may start asking a lot of questions and may ask the same questions over and over and that may be the way that they're dealing with their traumatic stress. A teen, like I said before, might withdraw from other people And also may avoid going to sleep at night because they're having a lot of nightmares, but they don't really want to tell their parent about that because they feel it, it may look like they can't deal with things or that they're not strong enough to manage what's going on around them. And like I said before, too, you might see that kind of increase in arousal and a child might be kind of the hyperactive kind of play in a teen. It may be just complete distractibility and an inability to focus. So that's kind of another way of maybe explaining that, those differences in a post-traumatic stress response after a mass violence event.
0: Sound Sounds kind of complicated, but you mentioned PTSD and intrusive symptoms and arousal symptoms, um, which are sort of parts of the diagnostic rubric that makes up post-traumatic stress disorder. Can kids be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, or is that just an adult diagnosis?
1: No, absolutely. Children can and have been diagnosed with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. I think the important thing is hopefully what I've alluded to is that the way it looks does vary and look differently than it would in a, in an adult or or even in an adolescent. And I think the only other thing I really want to mention to kind of a take home, we talk about how kids are affected by mass violence is, you know, that the adults, we all need to, pay, to recognize that children actually know more than we think they do So we may think they're not as aware of what's going on outside or around them, and yet they hear things, they see things, they learn from their peers, and so they may be reacting, um, and we're not even aware of it because we're not paying attention to the fact that they actually know more than we think they might.
0: Okay. You, You mentioned sort of peers and media and things like that, and that kind of leads into my next question, which is what should we know or what should we be on the lookout for with respect to kids in mass violence when it comes to media consumption i i vividly remember after 9 11 happened for example there were reports coming out of different uh, media outlets describing how children were just sitting down in front of the tv and watching over and over again different replays of the the various troubling imagery associated with 9-11, whether it was the planes hitting the buildings or the buildings coming down or something like that, and a lot of concern expressed about what effect that might have on kids. Do we know anything about media consumption and what parents should do about it following mass violence?
1: Absolutely. I I think the take-home here, I'll start with the most important thing, is that we have to limit screen time and we have to monitor what children watch. And I would even say, and this is something that has become more and more aware to professionals across the country here, is that very young children probably don't need to watch any kind of news at all, right? Little ones, because it's too confusing. They don't understand what they're watching and it's just this kind of overstimulation and bombardment of information. Older children, whether we want them to or not, right? We have 24 hour access to media in all different forms. So as a parent, as an adult, we really need to limit the amount of time that children are spending on their computers or iPads or phones so that we could really try to limit their exposure to all of this never ending media. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the tips that we talk about is, for example, for children, we can have parents, we can recommend to parents that they watch news, you know, reputable news sources together. And that gives an opportunity to answer questions that a child may have when they watch these kinds of things on the news or on on Facebook or wherever it is they're getting their information from. And when you watch together, when a parent and a child are watching together then that parent is there and they can ask the child what's their understanding of what's happening, what questions that child may have. And it also gives the parent an opportunity to kind of expand and provide additional information in an age appropriate way. Um, I would also argue that when a child is having difficulty, for example, sleeping, then trying to avoid any kind of media exposure right before bedtime. So really limiting having children take phones into their bedrooms or computers into their rooms so that they're not staying up all night and and scrolling and and having that never-ending exposure to media. And that's really important, particularly for youth who are having difficulty sleeping. For teens, we know that's a little bit more difficult to limit their media time. And so I think as a parent, it's important for for caregivers to really check in and ask. So, you know, what are you hearing about today? What questions might you have? But to avoid badgering, because then oftentimes teen's response would be to shut down. So giving them an opportunity to ask questions, starting the conversation, Um, also as an adult, it's okay to say you don't know if you don't have an answer, but offer to get that information for them or perhaps suggest that you could look up that information together. You know, I think for teens, especially being honest and admitting to what you do and don't know is critically important if you really want to continue to have good, you know, street cred with your older adolescent children.
0: Those are just fantastic tips, Rochelle, and I appreciate your sharing them some them, them with us. I, I guess one question to sort of build on from that would be one of the things I think we've talked about uh, with respect to adults, and and I, I know the same applies to kids, is that some kids are more affected by what they see um, and what they've experienced as part of a mass violence event, whereas other kids seem to be more resilient. Do you feel like the tips that you've just provided are, are relevant sort of across the board to all young people who experience mass violence, or is it extra important for those folks who might be struggling or who might have some vulnerability to mental health problems?
1: So I think if I'm understanding right, Dan, one of the points you're bringing up is that certain individuals are gonna be more at risk or more vulnerable to having stronger or more negative reactions after. Either because of
0: a previous trauma or previous mental health problems,
1: Exactly. Some kids
0: might be more susceptible to developing problem behaviors or, or symptoms. Exactly,
1: right. I mean, and we know, and there's been research that has looked at this, that there are certain factors that are gonna increase one's vulnerability to having an even worse reaction to something like mass violence. You know, a couple of, of examples to this, we know that individuals who are closer in proximity to a mass violence event are gonna be at much greater risk. So if they were actually there or saw someone injured or know someone who was injured or even killed because of a mass violence incident that's going to make them much more at risk for having more serious problems following an event um if their lives were more disrupted during that event again that's going to have a significant impact mm-hmm. a second thing you even mentioned yourself is that children who have had prior exposure to traumatic events either ongoing child abuse and neglect, or other kinds of traumatic events in their lives, in addition to having prior mental health problems, are going to be at greater risk for having even more problems after a mass violence event. Um, Some other things that come into play, one we just were talking about, children who have just this never-ending exposure to media accounts of an event are going to be at higher risk for more serious mental health problems.
0: I guess I didn't realize that, that the, the so, sort of so-called doom scrolling is is sort of associated with increased symptom levels.
1: Yeah, the more, you know, constantly being bombarded with the images and the media accounts of what happened is going to increase anxiety, particularly for a child who has a pre-existing kind of history of being anxious.
0: Gotcha.
1: Um, and the other thing I was going to say is just what we know from other kinds of sociodemographic variables. So youth in general who are in single parent homes are at risk for a lot of other kind of negative outcomes and this is no exception Um, when there's been prior difficulties with regulating emotions you know so children who already are having problems regulating emotions maybe they already have attention problems or other kinds of emotional difficulties this is going to get exacerbated after an event physical health problems um, children who have more chronic illnesses are going to be more vulnerable and just in general Families that have fewer social resources, this is just kind of adding on to that burden. And so we really want to pay attention and screen and try to give more supports and resources to families that have these heightened risks to begin with.
0: That's great advice. So, I mean, one of the one of the biggest take-homes I'm getting from what you're saying is that uh, parents need to be cognizant of their kids' vulnerabilities and their kids' screen time and, and be monitoring that and really sort of open the door to conversations, particularly with their older kids uh, around what it all means and how it might affect the family and the child in particular, but also that we as mental health providers uh, need to be aware that even if we're treating a kid in our practice for something like disruptive behavior disorders or depression, that a mass violence event, even one perhaps that they were not directly exposed to, but is all over the news, might really be Im- impacting that young person, and and we should be aware of that.
1: Yeah, and you bring up another really good point, Dan, as a health provider, children look to their parents for answers. And so as health providers, we can't aff- we cannot forget the parents, and mm-hmm. we have to make sure that they have an outlet, that they have some support so that they can be there for their child. And, you know, reminding parents, your children hear so much and to avoid kind of those conversations at night that they think their children are overhearing and they really are. You know, that would be kind of another piece of advice Mm -hmm. to try to avoid that. And also to make sure that the parents have a sounding board so they could air their own concerns and fears with another trusted adult as opposed to trying to, you know, deal with their children and their own emotional response to what's going on. So I, I do think it's especially sort of salient and heightened when we're talking about kids, that we need the parents to be the ones who are sort of, you know, doing okay, you know, in order to be able to help themselves. I mean, I always think of the analogy on a plane, and when they tell you, you know, parents to make sure that they put the mask on themselves first, so they could breathe, in order to be able to help their child. It's a very similar thing. We have to give those supports to the parents as providers, as healthcare folks, so that those parents could then provide those needed supports to their children.
0: What a great point i i think that's something that we often lose when talking about kids because our first response is to sort of oh you know we've got to really make sure that we're taking care of the children here and uh you're you're pointing out that one of the best ways to take care of children is to make sure their families and and parents in particular have what they need and you know i i'm certainly aware that that you and i both know about those families in which sometimes a parent because you know their life revolves around their family they often use an older adolescent as their sounding board as their way of of sort of bouncing hey hey, i'm thinking about this what do you think and in situations like this that might actually be a detrimental thing to do
1: yeah i would agree um you know and i think it's a balancing act because if you have a teenager and you're in a family where that teen has had a lot of responsibility um, then you know the, the parent may be very used to using that teen as a sounding board. And I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad idea. I think it's just, we have to make sure we have these supports in place because something like a mass violence incident is just out of the norm, it's unexpected, it's random, sort of disrupts the way that a family is typically functioning. And so we wanna make sure we have some of this, these additional thoughts and ways of responding um, in mind.
0: Great points, thanks, Rochelle. That's a good segue. I mean, sort of talking about families, talking about uh, supporting people. I, I wanted to, to pick your brain a little bit with respect to what we know about treating the effects of mass violence in children. Is there a literature out there about effective mental health treatments for young people exposed to mass violence?
1: So there are some very strong evidence-based or research-supported treatments for children and families who have experienced a traumatic event. One that many people probably have heard of is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and TFCBT probably has the most empirical support right now for addressing trauma-related symptoms, and that would include what we're seeing after a mass violence event, like a Post traumatic stress response. You know, importantly, again, these are not mental health. We don't do a, this kind of a mental health intervention right after, you know, within 24 hours after a traumatic mm. event. These are things that we would put into place, you know, one to three months later for children and teens who are still exhibiting significant symptoms that are impairing their functioning, right? Keeping in mind right after an event, nearly everyone is going to have a high level of distress. We worry about the kids and the teens that are having significant problems, you know, one to three months later.
0: Gotcha. I mean, I think that's critical as well. Uh, There's so much of a focus on, oh dear, this is affecting my child. And people kind of forget that after a trauma, which kind of by definition is hugely disruptive, that it's normal to not be able to stop thinking about it, to have Altered, you know, sleep patterns or uh, kind of anxiety feelings and so forth, and those in and, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but but over the for, for most folks over the course of that one to three month window that you're talking about, those symptoms, generally speaking, gradually return to normal and. For, for most folks, but for some people, they don't. And it sounds like it's that latter group that are the treatment candidates.
1: Exactly. And I mentioned, you know, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy or T F C B T as one of those interventions um, with a mass violence incident. A lot of children or adolescents may experiencing traumatic grief. So there are some good treatments around child traumatic grief. And then with, you know, those older teenagers, something like cognitive processing therapy or even an exposure-based intervention can be very helpful. But as you mentioned, these, again, are those children, adolescents that are still having significant problems a couple of months down the line, not in the absolute acute immediate aftermath. And just going back to something we said earlier is You know, We know that there are certain kinds of pre-existing conditions or, or things that have already been going on in that child's life that are going to make some of these kids more likely to need treatment. So those are the ones we want to pay more attention to. We want to screen more. And then the last thing I would add is that we do want to kind of pay attention and assess children and adolescents for any kind of thoughts or feelings about wanting to hurt themselves or others because they, of course, would need an intervention even sooner, we wouldn't necessarily just wait a couple months. You want to respond more quickly to kids who are having kind of those suicidal or even homicidal thoughts.
0: Right. And and are are those suicidal and homicidal thoughts, are they sort of common symptoms associated with post-traumatic stress disorder or exposure to a mass violence event?
1: No, and thanks, Dan, for correcting that. This is not something we're just going to automatically see. But if it does, it's something, obviously, that we want to pay attention to. But, again, most what you're going to see in most kids and teens is that immediate feelings of distress and helplessness and horror and fear. And most, again, will dissipate over time. And then you're going to have that percentage that are still having these problems later on that we want to make sure we pay attention to. But I certainly don't want to alarm people that. Feeling suicidal or homicidal is a normal response to a traumatic event. It's not something we're going to see in a high proportion of teens or children.
0: Well, but I think your point is really excellent, though. We wouldn't want people to discount, oh, well, this is just a normal part of the reaction process to a mass violence event. I'm not going to pay as as much attention to it because it'll go away. Um, What you're saying is it's actually fairly unusual so that if it is present, we should pay every bit as much attention to it as we would not in the aftermath of a mass violence event.
1: Correct. We would never, you know, dismiss or even discount a child who is having that kind of a strong emotional reaction. And if I can make one other point that makes to me treatment of children different than when we're talking about an adult is the role of that caregiver. When we're working with children and teens, we absolutely really need Ongoing active engagement and involvement of a supportive caregiver, it's very difficult to treat a child in isolation. And so we just have to remember that, that our interventions are gonna need to be family-based and have that strong caregiver component to the extent that we can
0: yeah and I, I mean thank you for pointing that out you actually you know predicted my next question i was going to ask you about that and you know i'm i'm familiar with tfcbt as as you know and and one of the things about that treatment is that it basically the structure of the treatment is that it involves the parent as an important part of the actual intervention uh, the the parents cognitions and ability to help the child as we were talking about earlier in in our conversation, um, are are an explicit focus of what goes on in TFCBT, which is why I think, you know, it it has such positive results.
1: Exactly. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a biological parent. It can be another, you know, very supportive caregiver in that child's life. Mm -hmm. So we, we want to think outside the box and figure out who is an important support for that child that we can involve In interventions where we're working with teens and and young kids.
0: What about those uh, kids who are out there who may, for whatever reason, just lack uh, a caregiver, lack someone either because they're in some sort of residential facility and therefore perhaps at higher risk of problems, or they might actually live in a family with caregivers, but for a variety of reasons, their caregivers just are either unable or unwilling to participate in treatment. Are there alternatives for kids in those kinds of situations?
1: Yeah. You know, I always say that we're going to do everything we can to see if we could find a good supportive caregiver for that child. Even a child in residential treatment, for example, might have a staff member that they feel connected to. But if we can't, I like to believe as mental health providers that we're supportive adults who can help that child. So I don't discount the importance or the role that mental health providers can play in these child's lives, but it doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to see if there is someone else that's kind of gonna stay in that child's life long after we as mental health providers are no longer there.
0: Gotcha. One of the phenomenon that's really interesting in the adult literature around PTSD is this sort of notion of a delayed onset, you know, where something happened 10 years ago and, and it happens and, and people seem to resume their normal levels of, of functioning. And then, you know, years later, uh, symptoms seem to appear. Is is that kind of a, a thing with kids with, with respect to mass violence? Do, do folks need to be very conscious forever about the the resurgence of PTSD symptoms or the, maybe I should say, the emergence of PTSD symptoms years and years down the road?
1: You know, I think my response around that would be not necessarily that there are no symptoms and then they sort of out of the blue appear. I think that more what's going on is it's the child's understanding of what happened and how that can change over time. So you may not see a lot of symptoms maybe in a younger child because they haven't really fully understood what's happened. But then they get a little bit older, and now they realize what that event was. And so it seems like it's out of a blue, out of the blue, but it really isn't. It's just that they have a different understanding and a, a processing of what's going on now than they have then. But you know, I think in general, you know, with time, for most of us, things do at least. Kind of get a little bit easier to manage, and as children get older, their coping strategies, of course, hopefully, are going to get a little bit stronger. But you know, I think it's pretty rare to say that there's absolutely no symptoms, and then all of a sudden they emerge. I, I just think it's a it's a way a child or adolescent as they get older are able to understand things, and then the way that they're manifested or exhibited.
0: That's a that's an incredibly good point, and I think something that's very insightful uh, is that I I think people tend to think of adults. I think, incorrectly, but they tend to think of adults as as fully baked, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, an adult, when they get to be 25, is sort of done developing. And I think that's actually false. But the way they understand things is is set. But um, in kids, there's absolutely no reason to think that, right? I mean, everything we know about emotional development, cognitive development, moral development, all of those kinds of things... There are these stage-based theories that we use to explain how children's thinking and processing of information becomes more complex as they get older. And it's extremely logical when you think about it the way you just framed it, that as their thinking it becomes increasingly complex, their understanding of the meaning of an event and how it affected themselves or their family or the world will really change. And that simple shift in understanding or appreciating the magnitude of an event could in conceivably in some cases produce new symptoms that have not really been there before. And I, I think that that's a just a terrific uh, insight that you've shared with us there. That's that's really important.
1: And the only thing I would add to that is that new experiences happen along the way. Mm. So you know it could be that something else happened which sort of tipped the scale, right? And so a child who maybe was doing okay, in addition to now having a better understanding of what happened, then they get abused or they witness another experience, another kind of traumatic event. So. Again, it might look like these are new symptoms, but they're really not. It's just that they've now really come to the forefront.
0: Gotcha. Rochelle, this has just been incredibly insightful and helpful. Um, Any any last comments that you wanted to make about kids and mass violence and what people should really be on the lookout for or aware of?
1: No, I, I think maybe the last thing I would say is just, again, to remember that children do know more than we think they do. And don't be afraid to ask kids what they know and what their understanding is and be prepared to answer their questions and to respond to them.
0: And I'll just add to that, don't be afraid of them. Uh, don't be afraid <laughs> of those questions and, and conversations either. I think that that's really important. Well, uh, Dr. Rochelle Hansen, I want to thank you so much for sharing your insight with us here at the MVP. You've been listening to the Mass Violence Podcast, the official podcast of the National Mass Violence Victimization Resource Center. And uh, thanks. Thanks.